The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I want to continue the subject that we started earlier in January, this series of talks and discussions, and hopefully you're doing some study on your own around the possibility of freedom. And as you might imagine, it's really as it often is, useful to begin with a lot of humility. Like, just to be curious, like, what is freedom? <laughs> and uh, as it is, as is also often the case, we know more about the absence of freedom, like what it feels like to be really entangled and caught up, and what it feels like to be oppressed and burdened and unhappy. But that's something, just to know the absence of freedom. Oh, I don't know about freedom, but I know right now this isn't freedom. And we can get clear, like balance the heart, stabilize the awareness and get clear. Well, what is this experience that I'm calling suffering, this absence of freedom? What is it? And what are the causes? And what happens when the causes, the supporting causes aren't there? Is that freedom? And, you know, the interesting thing when we are caught up in one way, little way, big way, or another, we often don't have enough interest and stability of awareness to keep tracking that experience of personally suffering. Here I am, being a suffering human being. It hurts. I'm angry. I'm upset. I want. I long. I'm lonely. So whatever the particular flavor of the suffering, but with a a real interest, a real curiosity and stability of awareness. We track it, we track it, we track it, we track it. We know it's like this, right? This is the one of the real great advantages of having some momentum in our awareness practice is we can track these ordinary human experiences of being a suffering human being. Until we notice something, it's gone. <laughs> But we were often awareness, wisdom awareness is often not there in that moment when there is suffering, there is suffering, and then it's gone, it ceases. And we know this is the case because otherwise it would be this amazing traffic jam of our personal suffering if it never went away. But it does go away. You know, we have this little vortex of suffering or that little vortex. We've had thousands, tens of thousands of dramas intense, heavy, difficult, painful spinnings of our heart, body, and mind. But one way or another, they have, are, you know, they have come to be, and then one way or another, they cease to be. And we often miss that, and there's a lot of learning and seeing how our mind and heart and body gets entangled, and seeing how that entanglement, that oppressive burdensomeness, ceases. And I just encourage all of us, we'll continue with this topic of freedom maybe for one or two more weeks, but just in a very pragmatic way to explore freedom and the absence of freedom in all ways. And like when the heart feels relatively open and loving and friendly, like just notice the freedom of that. And when the mind, heart feels contracted and afraid and angry or whatever contracted state it might be, Notice the absence of freedom. But in this balanced, non-judging way, it's not about judging ourselves 
or thinking that we're somehow fundamentally broken. But just understanding that movement from freedom to oppression, from freedom to being burdened by life, that's a natural movement, and we can learn something about that. And that is the, you know, I mentioned last week when we were talking about this relational world, the world of relationships, this is the primary learning in that world, that we live in a lawful relational world. So when there's a lot of suffering in our relationships, it's lawful, meaning we can come to understand how this has come to be. When there's this, there's that burdensomeness of the heart, that heaviness of the heart. When there's not this, the heart's not burdened. So what is the this that correlates with suffering in our relationships to our experience, our relationship to others, our relationship to our life, our body, our mind, the quality of the mind in a moment. And we really want to master the lawfulness of karma. So this generally fits under the teachings of karma, which just is a short way of defining that law of karma is that intentions matter. The quality of our heart, the qualities of our motivations and intentions they matter because they lay down an impression in the heart, in the mind stream. And then who I am now in this moment, the mind stream that is showing up and relating, participating, that mind stream was conditioned by those past impressions. So if I was relating unskillfully in the past, that relating unskillfully laid an impression down on the heart, on the mind stream. And so this is the mind stream that's now relating having that impression. So it all of a sudden becomes quite relevant. What sort of seeds are we planting now? Not much we can do about the seeds we planted, the impressions that were laid down in the past, because that's who we are right now. We are, you know, in this kind of normal sense of self, me, who I am, you know, this natural mind stream, this the sort of movement of, patterns of ways of relating, tendencies, impulsivity, right? This river that we call me, Mark, myself, it's just all these impressions that have been laid down. And so now in this moment, this is the sensitivity that's meeting the conditions of the moment. But it's already in motion. So all we can take responsibility is for is for the kinds of impressions or seeds that are being planted right now. And that's why last week I mentioned the power, the liberating power of restraint. It's because we might have the impulse to plant some seeds right now because of past tendencies that I can't do anything about because those tendencies are already alive in my mind stream, like the tendency to be defensive or the tendency to be reactive in whatever ways, you know, we're, we tend to be reactive, different for each of us, being the victim, acting out aggression, whatever the tendency might be, that tendency is real. We have to have a responsible, honest relationship with it because that's the nature of this conditioned heart, mind. But we can develop, as, as we talked about, I talked about last week, we can develop this power of restraint, like to sense the unskillfulness of acting out my aggression, acting out my anger, or beating myself up, 
and spinning with ideas of not being good enough and being bad and hating myself. So I can sense the tendency because it's there, it's real. I can be aware of it with wisdom and kindness and I can refrain from identifying, taking it personally, and I can refrain from acting as if that tendency was me. So the tendency is going to be the tendency. Those past tendencies or what got set in motion in the past, that in a sense is the karma we have to harmonize with. We have to have an honest and hopefully relatively intimate clear-minded relationship with all the tendencies that get triggered. And we know there, in a sense, are tendencies when we see that, oh, the heart feels like this, the heart wants to react like this, the heart wants to close down like this. We simply have to own these tendencies, not as so much who I am, but what's here now. And I, because it's here now, we, we respect them because they're here and now. And then the question is, what does skillfulness look like when the heart has the tendency to want to hit back? Whether our tendency is to hit ourselves or to strike out and with our words or whatever and cause harm for someone else because we're hurting. What's the skillful way? And this so-called moral truth, I'm, I'm saying that in a sense to be provocative, but you know there is this truth of our moral sensitivity. It's kind of a cumulative truth, a cumulative understanding that comes from letting the past get distilled into real earthy wisdom. And in Buddhism, as some of you know, we call that hiri otapa. This, this conscience is probably a useful English translation. You know, having a conscience means that our past actions, including maybe even most importantly, all our past mistakes, as well as any past successes we've had in this relational world, it lives in our heart as a kind of earthy wisdom, where we know the, the sort of cumulative earthy wisdom knows, whoa, I need to be careful here, because in the past I've made a lot of mistakes. I've acted out in ways that have caused me and others a lot of pain. So we have this sort of heightened awareness, this wholesome concern like, honey, be careful. And this wholesome regret. You remember what happened last time? That's still, that pain is still reverberating as a kind of temple, you know, a monument. Don't do that again. That's what we need. You know, we need these roadmaps, these sort of big monuments that say, hey, in the past, when conditions were similar, you did this, the heart acted in this way, and this enormous pain arose, this enormous complication arose. And so let's, this wisdom, this earthy wisdom we call you know, our conscience or this wholesome fear, this wholesome regret, it's like this edifice that, that allows us to refrain from doing, making the same mistakes again. And we really want to honor this. And it, you know, it, we feel it, but we mistrust. It's like, oh, I wish I didn't feel this. But actually what we should, should be saying to ourselves is, I'm so glad I feel this. Because it's like how the past speaks to the present. And this 
this, and it's embodied really, it's a visceral, often a visceral feeling that goes with whatever clarity, the thought that, oh, don't do this. Or maybe let's just, let's just pause for a moment and let the dust settle and see how could I, how can I avoid causing problems for myself and others? How can I creatively manage the situation that's presenting itself? How can I not just do what I've done before and get the results I've gotten before? How can we do this differently this time? And then I mentioned last week, you know, this can lead to the bliss of blamelessness, where we get to the place where more and more situations in our life, even difficult, so we're not like avoiding the complexity and the messiness of taking on responsibilities or getting involved or trying to make the world a better place, trying to make our lives better. We're really engaged, but we really trust that the heart has this power. It's really a the power that comes from moral sensitivity to pause when we don't know a way to be skillful. So when in doubt, we don't just trust the impulse to say something or to do something. When the conscience, this voice, this, uh, the Buddha calls it the guardians of the world, you know, the guardians of this relational world, this conscience of hiri otapa, moral fear or wholesome fear, moral or wholesome regret, this visceral sense of what's right and wrong doesn't come from outside of us. It's it's really the distillation of past experience, the heart reading cause and effect, learning from cause and effect, like what actually works in terms of how I relate, how I respond. What motivations, what intentions can be trusted? What motivations and intentions are not trustworthy? Right? And yeah, we can learn from each other, but mostly we have to learn directly, immediately from studying cause and effect. And that's like submitting to the law of karma is sort of the beginning of, of um, real safety as a human being and real wisdom as a human being. We become a, a spiritual being at that point. We're not just limited to being an animal following instincts and, in a way, trapped by our uh, past conditioning, doing what we've done before, getting the same results over and over, because there's no way, there's no capacity yet, we haven't developed or used the capacity to be reflectively aware, mindfully aware. Oh, when I relate in this way, this is what gets set in motion, more freedom or more complications. Right? So we're reading and that's what this reflective awareness, this wisdom awareness or mindful awareness provides. It really allows that conscience to really line up with what works and what doesn't work, what ways of relating are skillful. Not skillful, skillful theoretically, but actually in terms of what leads to our own well-being and the well-being of others what leads away from our own well-being and away from the well-being of others. And surprisingly, maybe, to find that they're always aligned in the deepest sense. Because sometimes we think, I have to sacrifice your well-being for my well-being. Or I'm going to sacrifice my well-being for your well-being. 
And that just seems to throw us for a loop. It makes everything complicated, like whose well-being am I going to care about right now? Your well-being or my well-being? As opposed to pausing and continue in that pause and that stability of awareness and that real interest and humility to study a way of showing up, a way of understanding, a way of responding that contributes in the deepest sense, in the long-run sense, to everybody's well-being and to avoid responding in ways that takes away from our own and others' well-being. And that's really the challenge. And I, you know, initially it is a bit, it's a bit of a, a leap of faith that there is a way to relate that contributes to everybody's well-being. And what one of the things that makes this uh, developing this way of being in the relational world, harmonizing with the relational world, and more and more living in ways that contributes to everybody's well-being. The real ticket to doing this is to get to know the non-relational world. So this is often kind of the stereotype of Buddhism, I think wrongly, is that it's more focused on this non-relational emptiness, putting everything down, you know, all these sort of experiences of not-self or talked about in different ways in our early Buddhist tradition. But they're really meant to work together the understandings that develop in the relational world actually support insight into the non-relational, I'm not sure we even call it world, but the non-relational. And insight into the non-relational really allows us to be more fully, freely in the relational world. They really work together. And if you're going to emphasize one of the two, emphasize the relational world because it brings a kind of integrity to the insights in the non-relational. Like if they don't make sense, if they don't apply to the relational world, I'd have a lot of questions about my non-relational insights, like seeing that everything's empty of self. If it doesn't make me a better human being, if it doesn't support my relationship with my cat or my partner or my friends or finding a way to give and receive in the world of relationships, then really what's the point of these insights into the non-relational? So let me talk about this. And I I gave an article, and it's here in today's um, resources, but it was there last week too. And it's um, Gil Afranstal's wonderful short article, The Relational and the Non-Relational Dimensions of Buddhist Practice by Gil Afranstal. So you can see that. I just, again, posted the link um, for those resources in the chat, so you can get that if you want. But first, I just want to mention Deepama. Some of you know Deepama here at Common Ground, both at the retreat center and our city center. We have um, posted around the building and on the altar a picture of Deepama, one of our contemporary teachers, a lot of our Elders here in the Western Insight Meditation or Early Buddhism community studied, had the opportunity to connect with Deepama. She even made it to IMS, Insight Meditation Society, I think possibly twice, but for sure once before she passed away. Um, So an Indian woman who was living in Burma and after some really significant losses 
in her life uh, went to the monastery in Burma and really took to the practice quickly, had very powerful, deep awakening. And unfortunately, uh, sort of is one of, in our lineage, one of our elders. And uh, so you could find, there's a wonderful book um, on Deepa Ma. Let's see, it used to be called Knee Deep in Grace, but then they republished it. And I think it's something, just the life or teachings of Deepa Ma, D-I-P-A and then M-A, because she was the mother of Deepa. Deepa was one of her daughters. So that's a, talk about an impersonal name, Deepa Ma. But anyway, uh, Joseph once described Deepa Ma, uh, just seeing her bowing down to the altar as love, bowing to love. And when people would get a hug from Deepa Ma, they'd go visit her. Eventually she moved back to India, and that's where a lot of the our Western elders met her in the late 60s and 70s. Um, when she was living in, in Calcutta. And uh, they'd get a hug from Deepama, and it was like this experience of unconditional love and profound emptiness. Like no one was there, but there was this vast, infinite, unconditional love. And maybe, fortunate, you know, if you're fortunate, you've had some experience like that, little glimpses of how that unconditional or universal love, the love that is so deeply healing, where we feel in a funny way so completely seen, so completely held in this relative relational sense. And somehow at the same time, there's a profound sense of how impersonal it all is. And uh, it's not obviously easy to put these experiences into world, words, but maybe in your small group today, if you stay for the small groups, you could chat about this. Or if you're not going to stay for the small groups at 11.45 to 12, then maybe just find your own time to journal or reflect or to talk with a, a dear friend about these. You know, we don't want to be, you do want to be careful about who you have these kind of conversations with so that person doesn't dismiss you as being silly or something like that. But it's really important to uh, be interested, not just in the more ordinary freedom here in our relational world where we're harmonizing and we feel there's this nice quality of friendliness and the capacity to refrain and um, yeah, just like knowing the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome and having feeling like we have the capacity to kind of live up to the aspiration to be wholesome and to refrain from the tendencies that are embedded in our heart to be unwholesome, right? And we feel like a competent human being. But we want to start integrating in what we call, what Gil Franzdahl at least is calling the non-relational or what in a more traditional Buddhist word we'd use is the unconditioned, right? See, right right there, that word, the unconditioned, we only know the conditioned. So the, the word, the unconditioned or the non-relational is really there's something, but it isn't something we can grasp because as soon as we grasp, then the mind's in relationship with it. The thinking mind is in relationship with it and we know that, well, that's not it. So let me read a little bit from um, Gill's article just to kind of get us started, and then we'll pick this up again next week. So what about this unconditioned, this non-relational? 
So I'm reading from the middle of Gill's article. While Buddhism puts a great emphasis on developing healthy and wise relationships to the world, it also includes an understanding of the drawbacks of the relational world. And this is the first step to opening to the non-relational, the unconditioned, is just naturally seeing that even when I deeply respect um, a growing, deepening capacity to be skillful in the relational world, to harmonize, to refrain from what's un unwholesome, to cultivate what's wholesome. There's a sense of insecurity or exposure in the relationship, relational world. No matter our competence, no matter how, how many good habits we've developed, we're still always vulnerable. Things change. And... Uh, and that insecurity is a, a necessary medicine. Seeing in, um, in kind of traditional Buddhist language, we say insight into dukkha, insight into the deep, subtle but deep sense of insecurity, vulnerability, unreliability, uncertainty. That's just normal, ordinary. It's just the way it is. Because it doesn't take away from wanting to learn how to harmonize, learning how to refrain from acting out in ways that take away my well-being and your well-being. We still care about that, but we see its limitations. As necessary as that work is in the relational world, the heart deeply, subtly seeks something beyond it. Even before it knows what that is. Because we need to be interested in order to see what we're not seeing. And so knowing the limitations of our relational world is a powerful way toward humility. And we need that humility to open. So a little bit later in Gill's article... He writes, to experience the fullest possibility of peace and freedom, we need to put to rest all our preoccupations and concerns, at least temporarily. Our mind does not need to be constantly relating to something. It is possible to still the activity of the mind and so experience a peace that is a radical alternative to how the mind usually operates. For this purpose, Buddhism points to the non-relational dimension of consciousness. So in a meditative space, you know, initially, we are in that relational world. We're relating to the thoughts, we're relating to the sensations in the body, we're relating to whatever's reverberating from earlier in the day in our heart, right? And we're cultivating skillful ways of relating and refraining from getting tight with what's moving. And we, with that harmonizing and the calming, the mind can begin to sense something that's here and now, but not the relational world. And it's sort of a letting go and a letting be of the relational world. It's a, you know, the way we often talk about it, it's a non-grasping, a non-dependence, a non-reactivity, to the relational world. And remember, the relational world is everything we know, <laughs> right? It's all of this. It's the thoughts, it's the emotions, it's the sensations, it's the sounds, it's the sight, 
It's all the conditions and the mind relating to conditions. Internal conditions, external conditions, subtle conditions, gross conditions. That's the relational world. And we need to develop confidence. This teaching on the non-relational depends on a healthy relationship to the relational. We need to have a healthy relationship to conditions, a wholesome way of being, harmonizing with the conditions of the moment, in order to intuit and develop this capacity to put everything down, to let go, to let be. In a way, it's just sort of falling back into nothingness or falling back into emptiness. But it's right here. It's always here. We're not going. No one's going anywhere. It's just dropping the burden of feeling obliged to be skillful. But we do that best when there's a lot of skillfulness, like the mind is steady, it's peaceful, it's relating with non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion to the different experiences that are coming and going. We call that a good sit, right? Peaceful, relatively still, hearts open, tender, but not reactive. And then in that space of having a good sit and appreciating the calm, right? It's just intuiting the possibility of I wanted. I think it was Gil Farmstead once mentioned to me just in a practice meeting, just this point of discerning um, a kind of spiritual gravitational pull. It's like we're in the world of gravity all the time, but we don't really notice gravity. I mean, we're affected by it all the time, right? But we could, right now even, if we wanted to, we could sense the pull of gravity. And there's a, there's a similar kind of spiritual intuition to putting it all down. And this, is, this kind of can lead, support, deepening of insight into what we call the unconditioned, the, the non-relational. And before we end, I just want to read a little bit more um, from Gill's article. The non-relational dimension of our mind, of the mind, is found through a not doing, and so involves letting go of our efforts to do, accomplish, avoid, and change what's happening, right? A hands-off. And he continues writing, more often this is a gradual process of calming down and quieting the mind. As the mind becomes more still, a point is reached when the meditator realizes that wanting further deepening of peace, a further deepening of the peace, is the very thing that stands in the way of peace. At some point, even letting go can be too much. Letting things be becomes the only possibility. And sometimes in, when I'm instructing people, I'll say instead of letting things be, is just sensing the possibility of trust. And even the ordinary word of relax, like, because it's really in these places, in these meditative places where there is a lot of peace and a lot of energy, a lot of brightness, and even a kind of intuition of possibility, like the heart, the spiritual heart, 
senses the proximity of opening to something it hasn't opened to before, right? So that really brightens the heart and mind. But even then, you know, there a little spiritual greed can creep in, like, oh, I don't want to blow this opportunity. I want to do this right. I really want to see what is there to see. But like Gil is tra- pointing to, that can get in the way. So it's at some point, the the gateway, the opening to what we call the unconditioned, as one teacher once said, is an accident waiting to happen. So we can make ourselves accident-prone, but the ego, in a sense, what we think of as the ego, what we think of as the practitioner, they can't do it. And any sense of me doing it, the practitioner doing it, the wise meditator doing it, ends up in the end to get in the way. Even though it was very useful for a long time, you know, being the good meditator, doing what the meditator should do, at some point, something like letting be or trust or relax and allow. Allow the gravitational pull to do what the gravitational pull does. And I'll just read a few more sentences here. Gil writes, As we calm down, it is possible to sense a way of being in this world which is non-relational. That is, our minds are not operating with any concerns or relationships to anything. With this comes a deepening sense of well-being. As our mind becomes less preoccupied with the relational world, deeper wellsprings of loving-kindness, empathy, and insight can arise. Our relationships tend to become healthier, simpler, and more straightforward. And this is what I meant. The only actual way to sense the deepening of insight into the unconditioned is how it continues on in terms of how we're relating in the relational world. That's how we know the deepening is happening. It just gets lighter. The heart is more nimble and creative and tender, compassionate, functional in the relational relational world. <clears throat> Precisely because the heart feels less burdened by the relational world. Because of the insight into the unconditioned, the relational world is much more workable. It's still totally messy and imperfect, including our own tendencies, but they're all workable because of these insights into the uh, the non-relational. I'll read just uh, one or two more sentences here. As the mind becomes simpler, more peaceful, and less caught up in things, a time comes when all the intentional and relational activity of the mind comes to a stop. Awareness can exist without it being brought into the service of the mind's desires and aversions. It just is. This non-relational way of being defines or defies exact definition. It's impossible to cling to the state or to claim it as one's own, because to do so is to leave the non-relational state and return to being in relationship to something. It is a little like grabbing an open hand with the hand itself. The open hand disappears as soon as the hand closes around itself. We can know that we are experiencing the mind that is not relating to anything, but we can't touch it with thought, description, or any form of self-appropriation. So hopefully that makes us interested. 
and just uh, de- deepening our competence in the relational world, learning from karma, from cause and effect, sensing this power of restraint, the kind of power of conscience to allow us to have an honest relationship with our unwholesome impulses, but does not have to act them out in ways that take away from our well-being or the well-being of others. And then because of that greater competence and capacity to harmonize, we'll have more calm, including in our meditations. And in these more quiet times in our life, more steady, more still qualities, then we can sense this subtle trusting, this subtle gravitational pull for the heart to let go of its entanglements with sense experience. It's not a aversion to the world of sense experience, but it's also not a trying to get anything from anything. It's really, like Agil says earlier, a non-doing. And it's uh, it's mostly about being being in a really quiet, steady, bright, clear space and humble. Because the habit when we're in a really nice meditative space is to think, without noticing that we're thinking it, this is a really good place for me. (laughs) You know, I really like this place. It's so peaceful. You know, so we're identified with the peace we sometimes can access in our meditation. We want to replace that habit with a more humble, open, curious. Like, what is this? But that curiosity not framed, like, we're not interested in what we've already seen. The mind is interested in what it doesn't know, which means it can't be gripping to what it thinks. So that's why I sometimes use that relaxation, or we use the word trusting, or letting be, or that simile that Gil mentioned about sensing a very subtle but real gravitational pull. Because that leads the way. Then the heart will find its own way. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.